The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. This is Rainmaker FM, the digital marketing podcast network. It's built on the Rainmaker platform, which empowers you to build your own digital marketing and sales platform. Start your free 14-day trial at rainmakerplatform.com. These are the Writer Files, a tour of the habits, habitats, and brains of working writers. From online content creators to fictionists, journalists, entrepreneurs, and beyond. I'm your host, Kelton Reed, writer, podcaster, and mediaphile. And each week, we'll find out how great writers keep the ink flowing, the cursor moving, and avoid writer's block. This week, award-winning, globe-trotting travel journalist Adam Skolnick is back as guest host for another edition of Writer Porn, where we discuss pertinent writerly paraphernalia that has crossed our collective radar. Adam is the co-author and author of 25 Lonely Planet guidebooks. He has also written for publications as varied as The New York Times, ESPN, Men's Health, Outside, and Playboy. He recently finished his first narrative nonfiction book based on his award-winning New York Times coverage of the death of the greatest American freediver of all time. In this episode, Adam and I will discuss how to counteract the negative effects of sitting all day. Why you think better on your feet? Is binge reading online making us dumber? Why relaxing your process can help your productivity and how to write a bestseller, according to James Patterson. And I am pleased to welcome Adam Skolnick back to the Writer Files for another edition of something that we are calling writer porn. Oh, porn. You said porn. What is writer porn? I have no idea. I just, you, you named it that. <laughs> I think it's things that come across our desk that are pertinent to the writing life. Oh, to the writer and only the writer? Sure. Yeah. What if our listeners aren't writers? Well, that's okay. We welcome you. Welcome. Welcome, non-writers. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we collect, I collect these kind of tidbits of, of, you know, whatever they might be quotes, writerly advice and, um, kind of lumped them into this category. And I, and I asked you back and thankfully you took me up on it to do another session where we kind of riff on some of these things. And it's a little bit different than the interview 
segments that I do for the writer files, but I'm excited to have you back. Thanks for taking time to do this. I know that you just finished your book and that's very exciting. And I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I did get to look at uh, a galley. Did you know that? <laughs> well, you, I don't think it was a galley, but no. I think I emailed you the book. <laughs> yes, I knew that. I emailed it to you. Who oh. do you think emails my emails? Do you think Do you think I hire an email service? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, but I was very honored to get into it. And man, it, it's good stuff. Very compelling. I'm excited for the rest of the world to to get a chance to see it. So congratulations, man. Thanks, man. I really appreciate that. What uh, are you presently working on over there? I am uh, about to get on a boat with Jack Johnson and a couple of pro surfers in the Bahamas, and I'm going to sail through the Bermuda Triangle to Bermuda researching marine plastic pollution for a magazine story. So I leave on Friday for that. And that should be a wild and interesting journey. Is Jack Johnson, is he the, the um, musician? Yeah. Okay, cool. And he's also a well-known surfer, so I get it now. Yeah, yeah. He's, he lives in the North Shore of Hawaii. He's been surfing his whole life. So he's, uh, you know, the ocean's important to him. And, and he's giving back. He's sponsoring this expedition, so it should be cool. Sounds actually really exciting. And um, I'm jealous. Thanks, man. Well... Uh, I hope it's cool. I've never gotten seasick before, so I trust I'll be fine. And uh, and I bought a windbreaker at REI, so I think if I bring my windbreaker and my moleskin notebook and nothing else, I should be fine. Your bikini? Oh, my bikini and my cowboy hat. Okay. Yeah, don't forget the hat. Um, it really completes the look for you. So now that I've got you here, I can kind of pick your brain about some stuff that, that's crossed my desk. And I know that you've, you've seen a lot of these things as well. But speaking of desks, I think the first thing we should chat about is standing desks. And essentially, I just keep seeing more and more stuff about standing desks. And for people who work online and, and uh, you know, are professional writers, full-time writers or content creators and what have you... You know, I think a lot of us are, are getting these kind of uh, missives about the standing desk. Do you have a standing desk, Adam? I do not, Kelton. Have you ever used a standing desk? I have. There was a period of time where I had kind of two desks going on, and I would switch back and forth. It was kind of like one of those butcher blocks that became a desk, and so I'd have my sitting desk and my standing desk, and I liked it. It worked. But... You know, with me and my lifestyle, I'm so nomadic that I end up just pretty adaptable and I'll sit wherever I have to sit to work. And I think when I was writing the novel, I mean, the the uh, the, the book, the nonfiction book, it just required too much focus. I, I didn't find standing it was working for me. But if I'm working on a guidebook, something like a, a Lonely Planet book or a magazine article where it doesn't take that as much kind of long long-term focus, I can, I can bang out a few things standing. Uh, I do stand a lot when I'm talking on the phone in between. I don't, I don't sit all day uh, at any one point, but I'll sit for a couple of hours at a time, maybe. Sure, sure. Well, I think writers of all disciplines tend to work sitting down, you know, for, for many hours at a time. And, you know, now I think we're seeing evidence that that excessive sitting can technically be considered a lethal activity or, you know, we've, we keep hearing like sitting is the new smoking. 
Yes. But what would, what would sitting and smoking be then? Probably not great for you. No. I uh, quit many, many decades ago. I'll... Yeah. I only smoke on the treadmill now. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, writers are investing money in these standing desks for their health. And I think, you know, there's a couple different kinds of standing desks. Certainly there are some some hacks to kind of get into a standing desk. I mean, you could you could do what you do, you know, kind of just use a higher counter. But, yes, you know, uh, that New York Times article is sitting a lethal activity kind of pointed out that there are just kind of a cascade of harmful metabolic effects that that occur when we are sitting. And it's not great for your heart or your cholesterol levels, right, to be kind of sedentary. And, you know, over a lifetime, these unhealthful effects of sitting do add up according to research by these uh, epidemiologists. Am I saying that right? Epidemiologists. Thank you. At the American Cancer Society, um, they did this huge study that showed a definite overall increase in the death rate. And, you know, they estimated that on average, people who sit too much definitely shave a few years off their life. Yeah. Well, that, that makes sense to me. Uh, I think, I think, yeah, I mean, I think everyone knows that sitting, sitting and being a potato of some kind, couch or desk potato, I guess that's what we are now, desk potatoes, that uh, that's, that's going to be bad for your physical fitness. You know, if you can't, but, but not everybody has the space to do or the, or the attention span, frankly, to, to create the perfect work environment. You're one of those people that your uh, physical environment, your, inter- your interior environment, your office has always been really important to you. So you're going you're gonna to do something about it. And there's a lot of people like you. Then there's people who are just like, don't have the capacity to care that much. And what I read recently, I read something in Outside Magazine that said, it's really not necessarily that you're sitting all the time while you're working, but it's that you're sitting the, all those hours unbroken. And that there are some, I know outside just published something online. And if you, you looked at it, if you looked at kind of cures for, for sitting at the desk or something on their website outside online, you'd find this incredible uh, exercise routine that wouldn't take long. And it includes like doing things like that babies do, crawling and, and rolling yourself over without using your hands on your back, like just basically like doing just just rolling over, rolling from one side of the room to the other. And it does something, it aligns your body and your posture in a way that really basically counteracts everything you've been doing at the desk for that 55 minutes beforehand. So if you do something like that every five minutes, that's another, that's another example that that could help, you know, every five or 10 minutes. Or if you take two hours to work and then 15 minutes do like moderate yoga or something just in, in, in the office just to kind of counteract it, take a walk around. Yeah. I think it's the unbroken sitting that's the bad part. I don't think it's yeah. that you can't sit at a desk and work. But I think what you're doing, it, which is to kind of allow yourself to be more productive in different ways, is, is also a great cure for it. I just think that there's a lot of ways to do it. Sure, absolutely. There's definitely no one way. I have seen the, you know, the yoga poses which, you know, frankly, isn't, isn't something I'm going to do. But, you know, I think one of the other studies was saying that, in essence, just, just any kind of, like, non-exercise activity thermogenesis is what they call it, or NEAT um, is the acronym, is basically the little movements that you do throughout the day do kind of counteract that stuff. So any kind of, like, stretching or, or you know, moving around in the office – you know, I tend to pace, um, which is another thing that well, we can talk about that in a second. But but is also actually really good for you. Just getting up and walking around it helps you to be more creative 
interestingly enough. But I think what that big study showed was that the good news is that that peril can be countered is, is I think the point that you are also getting at. And, you know, I think this other study by these Canadian researchers showed that both types of the different uh, standing desks actually reduce sedentariness, which is one of the big problems and improve mood. So either a standing desk or a treadmill desk. And, you know, clearly the treadmill desk is going to be a little bit more distracting. Treadmill desk? A treadmill desk. This is a thing. And basically, overall, they're saying the evidence suggests that both standing and treadmill desks may be effective in improving overall health, both physiologically and and your mental health combined. So it's kind of interesting. But they did say that the treadmill desk ranked lower for uh, productivity stuff. And I think that's probably because how can you walk? And I don't think I don't think the treadmill desk is destined to be a big seller. Sure. I'm going to go out on a limb here. (laughs) Well, you wouldn't know until you tried it, but I just can't imagine doing it. So anyway, that's going to hurt its product. product, (laughs) I'm not selling it here. I'm not not an affiliate. (laughs) It's going to hurt the product rollout if you can't (laughs) imagine ever using it. Probably. (laughs) That's the problem with the treadmill desk. So (laughs) earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow. A DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books, and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview, and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. You know, International Journal of Health Promotion Education proved that, you know, in another study that people really do think better on their feet, which is, I think, probably another check mark in the uh, category of we should be probably standing more um, while we work. And, you know, I think there are some ways that have been proven to be effective. And there are some ways that actually probably wouldn't be that effective. I think the treadmill desk is a question mark, but making sure that you're using the right posture when you are actually using a standing desk is also important. 
Are you using the right technique? This other article that I found basically from Make Use Of, I think, said that, you know, if you're if you're using the wrong posture, it's going to, it's going to basically counteract those positive things that you're doing as a a user of a standing desk. And, you know, my hack here was to, I inherited a very nice bookshelf from a friend. Um, It looks like a, some kind of a a piece of modern art, but it has the perfect height to put a laptop, which should, uh, according to make use of be at eye level. But of course, typing on the laptop at that level would be terrible for, um, like, say, my back or getting some kind of carpal tunnel syndrome. So it is suggested to do some kind of like a a Bluetooth keyboard and or mouse on a different shelf. And that's exactly what I've done. Zero dollar hack. I have a standing desk. I can get up and use it when I start to feel slothful. Slothful? Yes, slothful. Okay, I think we've covered standing desks. (laughs) Okay, well, that was the big one. I mean, I think it's kind of, it's been a topic that keeps coming across my own desk, so we nailed it. Yeah, we really (laughs) nailed that one. I hope hope they're all still listening. (laughs) So, let's talk about word consumption. Let's talk about it. What does it mean? Binge reading disorder, is that what you're referring to? Yes, binge reading disorder. Ah, Explain binge reading disorder, Kelton Reed. Well, I'm not sure if that's the scientific terminology for it, but according to data, recent data, a typical American consumes more than 100,000 words a day and remembers probably very little of that information that's uh, being scanned into their cerebral cortex. But is that a good thing? I don't know. Is it making us dumber? What's your take on it? Uh... I don't think so. I think we were already dumb. (laughs) That's a great answer. And I think we can just stop right there. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, I I typically, if I'm reading stuff online, it's typically mindless sports drivel or, uh, you know, news stories I'll read on my phone in the morning. I'll get the newspaper on the phone. You're you're reading more now. You're just not reading all of them in the same place. Uh, The big argument is, is there a difference with reading it on the screen versus reading a hard copy? I like to read both ways. Uh, I don't think it matters. I'm kind of agnostic on platform stuff. I know a lot of people, you know, it's just easier to use a Kindle um, when I'm on the road. So I'll use a Kindle when I'm on the road and I won't, I don't feel bad about it. And, and, uh, I don't think it's making us dumber at all. I think if anything, our memories are probably hampered because you can Google anything at any time, but that also makes our arguments more informed because instead of just two people talking over a cocktail about something that neither of them knows anything about, but really being passionate, passionate about it, Mm -hmm. they can actually Google it and then they don't have to talk about it anymore. (laughs) True. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I've, I pull out the smartphone on countless occasions in any sort of, um, you know, not argument per se, but discussion. What does it all mean type discussion? Sure, sure. Right. I think it's interesting that, that, you know, going back to that Atlantic article by Nick, Nicholas Carr is Google making us stupid, where he argued that the abundance of information that the internet provides is diminishing our abilities to comprehend what we read. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. I do feel like at times, like I know too much because I've, you know, scanned so much stuff in there. But, you know, I think what this study found, at least the UC San Diego report that said the average American 
basically ingests 100,000 plus words includes text messages, emails, social media, subtitles, advertisements. We're just bombarded with stuff. Yes. The truth is that um, when this gentleman, Josh Schwartz, did, he's a data scientist for traffic analysis, uh, the traffic analysis firm Chartbeat found that the way people read on the internet is that they very rarely make it past kind of halfway uh, through any article that, that crosses their desk. And there is a very large percentage that don't even get into the article. They just click the link, grab the link, share it without even reading it. So a lot of this stuff that we're seeing in the Twitter feed is stuff that, that these social shares haven't actually ingested, comprehended. Yes, that's for sure. That, yeah. That's for sure that people yeah. do that all the time. I have myself have done that once or twice. <laughs> I don't know if Schwartz knows that. Was it Schwartz? I think actually he he was the one who pointed Schwartz. me to your. Did Schwartz out me on that one? <laughs> yeah, he pointed me to your sham Damn Twitter you, Schwartz. <laughs> Listen, if I tweet out a link, chances are I've read at least half of that link. And if there's something at the end of that story that makes me look like a jerk, it's not my fault. <laughs> Cause I'm just following. I'm just right. Following. But it, I mean, this is probably what most of us are feeling that, you know, all right, uh, I kind of get it. So we're scanning, we're scanning. Well, I think we're also parroting. We're just like, we're like, we see someone's uh, tweet come across and they're, we're like, Oh, I like that guy. So that must be cool. And you just want to support that person or you, you know, what, for whatever reason you want to be, you want to, you want to be a positive in their social media sphere for that moment. So you sure. do it. So I think a lot of times the retweets of other people's links are fine. But the funny part is if no one ever read the link. <laughs> right. What if the person who you're retweeting hasn't even read the link that they're retweeting? And it's just this crazy sure. hall it's a, of it's mirrors. A crazy Wait, hall of you're mirrors. saying the internet is a hall of mirrors? I'm saying it's a... Well, there's definitely an echo chamber. Is that what Schwartz is saying? Because he's a genius. Yeah. Well, this is some kind of existential question about something else. But moving on, a Pew report comparing the habits of ebook readers versus print readers, which is kind of interesting, noted that paginated reading comprehension far outpaced the continuous infinite scroll like we face on the internet every day. So maybe there is something to be said for comprehension, you know, of reading done in a different way than we are so used to seeing on the internet. Well, that could also just mean books are taken more seriously than the the general scroll or like the time you take to leaf through a magazine is going to matter more than the general scroll that you do on a typical day. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think this researcher from that report in Sweden said that scrolling took more of your mental resources that could be spent comprehending text at least enough to memorize it. So I guess if you're doing some pretty heavy duty research, you probably want to make sure that you're staying a little more focused. I I think coffee works great too. Oh yeah. (laughs) Good. Is that helpful? Uh, No, (laughs) I think think we should just go directly to James Patterson at the beginning of your podcast. I think that I think you're going to find as you go through this podcast that it really should be all Patterson. <laughs> but this is our big tease to the Patterson experiment. Just a quick pause to mention that The Writer Files is brought to you by the Rainmaker platform, the complete website solution for content marketers and online entrepreneurs. 
Find out more and take a free 14-day test drive at rainmaker.fm slash platform. Okay, we're going to skip over the notebook portion. I'm assuming that's what you're suggesting. Well, I don't know. I mean, the notebook portion, we could do the notebook portion. Well, I just think it's interesting that this other study, the last study we'll mention by a researcher at Northwestern University, showed that students who took notes in a notebook in a class compared to on a computer ended up with better test scores for that class. I've seen this in a few different places. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I think that when I first, okay, I, we might, I might have talked about this in the last podcast. I feel like I'm repeating myself, but I was a part of a process at Lonely Planet when Lonely Planet was going to a shared publishing platform. They were, and before that, we authors were preparing their manuscripts in Word, mailing that, uh, emailing that to a, a coordinating author who was putting that all into one document and sending that in to the publishers who were then taking it apart and putting it in their own publishing platform internally, their own software, uh, so that they can paginate and do everything they needed to do. And then after that book was done, the web people would take it apart and put it online and update whatever their online content was. And basically what that was doing was it was making it impossible to have fluid, updated material online and in a time-efficient way because everything was geared towards the, the brick-and-mortar bookshops and the print books. So now as everything was kind of changing, I think about 2008, this was when, whenever I was in Colorado doing that. Was that 08? No, that, that was like, oh, that was 2010. So everything started to change around 2010 and they, they decided to get sleeker and try to just try to be more competitive and try to figure out a way that you could be updating online at the same time that you're updating the books. And so they had a couple of us pilot this shared publishing platform experiment where I would take notes in my phone or on an iPad and um, wouldn't use, they didn't want me using my moleskins, which is how I was usually taking notes when I was in the field. And so it was everything from using this new database type platform when we're writing it up, but all the way to in the field, try to use some other type of equipment. And so at first I thought, wow, I'm going to lose something in the translation because I always thought there's something about putting your pen to paper in an analog way that opens your brain and kind of opens your own perception and, and comprehension in a way that's unique and interesting. I always thought that. But, uh, and at first, I found it really clunky to use the iPhone for notes. But then over time, I just stayed with it. I, I was asked to stay with it for a week and see if it, uh, it changed. And within a few days, it started to change. So within a few days, I started to get comfortable taking notes. Now I can take notes in the phone faster than I can write them in a moleskin. I can then save those notes. You're not going to lose your, you know, the, the notes are going to constantly get uploaded to the cloud. So you're not going to lose stuff. If you somehow lose a notebook, you're screwed, but not in the phone. And I also find that, that, it, that this idea that using a pen and paper opens your mind a certain way is, isn't so accurate anymore either. Because once I got used to doing that, I could come up with the same, I mean, I think similar insights. I don't think the insights are any different. I think my my conditioning to creating the insight or to discovering my own insight or whatever it might be, that was a condition. I just happened to be doing that while I was using the pen and paper. But when I started to use the phone, it worked that way too. Now, when you're trying to comprehend something, I think writing it down might do something to your brain that typing it wouldn't. I don't know, but it might, could be. It sounds like this, it sounds like Solomon found that to be true. Could be. Yeah. I think, um, a lot of my stuff definitely starts on paper and I find that it helps me early on in the process. And then I kind of move into the 
the more digital um, idea building. So I don't know. I feel like the ideas are born more easily for me when they start in a notebook or on a note card. But I'm a fan of any all these hybrid models, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the key point, I mean, for writers, especially newer writers or younger writers that are, are making a go of it, I think the important point isn't are you sitting at a desk or standing up, are you using a notebook or are you using a phone or using a, a laptop? I think the key is do it. Just keep doing it. It doesn't matter. Like I, I'm really agnostic with all this kind of all this process stuff. I'm not a real process guy. Like I, I'm partly it's because I'm you know I'm I'm on tight deadlines a lot, and I'm, I'm so I'm I'm constantly I'm just constantly having to do it. Um, and part and partly because I'm traveling so much that I've just become adaptable kind of uh, by nature. But I think the key thing is to not be too precious for me anyway. I think the more precious I get about the way things have to be done, the greater the excuses to not getting things done. And that's my personal approach. It's not everybody's approach. I mean, I think process can really matter for some people, and it's really important. I think some people are super interested in that. I'm less interested in that and more interested in are you doing the work? And however you need to do it, do the work. And, um, it's, and if, if it helps to create a process that works for you, then do it. Um, I think I'm just to the point where I'm kind of process takes a backseat. Nice. That's a great takeaway. Thank you for getting us there. Sure, man. So precious. Let's talk about, let's talk about another precious American resource. No, this, this man is decidedly not precious, which is probably his greatest, the greatest thing about him. James Patterson. That and his website. James Patterson. James Patterson. I am so excited to be talking about James Patterson, mainly because I've never once read a James Patterson book, not one time. That is so strange. I, I can honestly say the same thing. But there's no question that this man, James Patterson, uh, and the reason we're talking about this is because he is offering a masterclass in writing through a website called Masterclass and a uh, startup called Masterclass. There's no question that James Patterson, whose annual salary clocks in at 90 mil, it looks like, knows how to write a bestseller. And now for $90, that's right, $90 American, you too can learn how to write a bestseller from James Patterson. Yes, or not, but we're going to find out if, <laughs> if this works. What is it about James Patterson that kind of ruffles people's feathers? Aside from the fact that he is the author of 19 consecutive number one New York Times bestsellers. I think it's because he, he has like basically created this stable of co-authors and comes up with these ideas and then they execute them and then he manages to turn them all into bestsellers. So you're kind of, it's almost like the, you know, the sausage factory of writing. And so that bothers a lot of people, especially in the literary world who are super kind of driven towards the auteur type production. Although in in a lot of ways, what he's doing is kind of the new 2.0 version of Pulp Fiction past, which was like, you know, just get stuff on the market and get people reading. And so he's very unprecious about it, which is, I think, probably the coolest thing about it. But, you know, I I haven't read his novels, so I have no idea how good they are. Sure. They must be something to them. They're, they're selling a lot. Sure. So he's basically the bestseller machine over there. And now he's working with these ghostwriters and, and co-authors. Probably nothing wrong with that other than it ruffles some people's feathers, probably in the literary. It actually even ruffled, I think, <laughs> Stephen King's feathers. But um, yeah, it's interesting, interesting kind of debates about 
James Patterson and his, his, you know, just his kind of claim to fame. And he's written 95 novels since 1976. That's amazing. Yeah. He holds the New York Times record for most best selling hardcover fiction titles by a single author, total of 76. And that is also a Guinness record. That's amazing. So he's got something going on. I mean, you know. <laughs> well, so he clearly knows what he's doing. Yeah. He basically. In a sense, he's kind of like, I mean, could you com- compare him to McKee and his, um, his kind of screenwriting formula? Well, I, I don't know, because I, I, read, I read Story by Robert McKee, and I, and I liked it. I thought it was interesting. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm excited to hear that. But, you know, for me personally, why I'm interested in the course, aside from hoping that there's some amazing James Patterson quotes that we can talk about on, on, the, on the podcast over the next <laughs> several weeks. I mean, I'm hoping, kind of hoping that it's absurd, but also poignant. Like I'm hoping he has some, like some, you know, strikes gold here and there. I'm sure not every episode is going to be great, but I'm hoping there's some good moments. I mean, I keep thinking of adaptation. Yes. That great movie with uh, Nicolas Cage where he plays Charlie Kaufman and Kaufman takes the Robert McKee class after his brother, his twin brother had taken it and decided to write a screenplay. And now Charlie, who's kind of admired in writer's block and is having a hard time turning The Orchid Thief into a great book by Susan Orlean into uh, its own movie. He takes McKee's class and McKee berates him publicly and then, and then gives him some great, great tips. So, you know, that's a, that's an amazing scene. It's tremendous. And I, I hope at some point James Patterson personally lambastes me during this class. <laughs> what? Okay. No, but honestly, what I have, <laughs> what I have the hardest time with, and I think Kaufman was having a hard time in that scene. I mean, I know it's fictional, but it's still funny. He was having a hard time because he was trying to take this somewhat complex subject and turning it in, turn it into a story without falling into the cliche traps of you know beginning, middle, end, you know action, uh, you know act one, act two, act three, all the things that you're supposed to do. He wanted to break that mold, and McKee basically tells him, "No, you gotta you gotta see through, see that mold through, and come out in the end because life is like that." I personally have a different issue. I get attracted to ideas that have so much to them. It's hard to distill it in a simple storyline. And I'm always envious of writers who can create simple, small, perfect stories. Uh, And I think those are the stories readers like the best. They can relate to them the best. They can get lost in them a little easier. I mean, even the book I've just finished, which I I really like, and I think it's, I think you can get a lot out of it. There are, you know, there are kind of three levels to it. It works for that, for that book. But, you know, if I'm going to write a, 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 better, a better novel next time around, you know, my previous novel was kind of this slice of life, 10 years of my life squashed into one. Um, and there's, there's just so many twists and turns to it. It's definitely not that neat and tidy story. And I think, if anything, Patterson definitely has story hooks down. And I'm interested in being able to rein myself in as a writer and bringing my energy into a bit more of a tight story. So I'm hoping that Patterson will have some tips in that regard. So that's sure. a dead serious reason. I'm hoping, I'm hoping there's something there. And then I'm hoping there's a lot of unintentional comedy. Well, I mean, there is something to be said for, for these writing formulas. And certainly um, Hollywood uses a, uh, a screenwriting formula, as you know. And copywriters also use formulas all the time. I'm thinking of um, like the AIDA method for writing good online and print copy, which is attention, interest, desire, action. I mean, these are all things that writers can learn from. And I think it's interesting, actually, 
you coming from kind of a, a creative nonfiction and fiction and screenwriting background, me coming from some of those same backgrounds with the kind of the copywriting thing thrown in there. It'll be interesting, I think, for us to experiment. So what are we going to do? Well, I think we have to figure out, do we like Patterson first off? I mean, <laughs> I think, I think you know, it's easy. Some of the other people, uh, you know, it's funny. You look at this master class and you could take acting classes from Dustin Hoffman or tennis lessons from Serena Williams. Uh, you know, it's, it's, so, it's so absurd. Well, the masterclass project is very interesting. It's just, it's just completely absurd. But I mean, it's like, it's like your famous icons becoming infomercial, pitching infomercials. Right. right. So it's like, it used to be the people on infomercials were the people who were like the washed up actors of old. Like, like it makes sense. For instance, I I think it would make more sense if Eric Estrada was giving a masterclass in acting (laughs) online than than Dustin Hoffman. (laughs) But well, what these guys have done with the masterclass project, um, this San Francisco startup, is gotten some really impressive kind of marquee names to back them for this San Francisco-based project. And they're using well, not only did they get like Usher and Robert Downey Jr.'s company and Michael Bloomberg's venture capital Bloomberg beta uh, backing for this project. They're, they're using some really high profile directors to make this, these online courses, which are kind of the new black for sure. I mean, they're directed by top filmmakers, so they look beautiful and they have interactive exercises. Hopefully one of them is Mr. Patterson yelling at you. Yeah, I hope so. I am holding out hope. You know, and they come with additional learning materials, Q&A sessions. I mean, this is kind of like the new, and it's been around forever, but kind of the new online business model. And this is these are like beautiful digital products, kind of like the highest quality. Yes, they're great products, but they're like they're like dream products where people taking them can imagine that one day they'll be like the person teaching them. Right. And in reality, it's just a way to get those other people rich. So it's not like this giving, it's not like some give, you know, listen, if, if Dustin Hoffman and, and James Patterson wanted to teach a class and they cared mostly about just giving their, you know, what they've learned to, uh, to create their legacy freely to people, they would do it for free on YouTube. <laughs> okay. So you're saying it's not philanthropy. Absolutely not. I mean, it's, it's, it's like this crazy marketed approach to teaching people. Uh, and I, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think it's going to be limited, but I'm interested in it because I think that if anything, there's going to be nuggets. You know, I don't think you could put people who've accomplished what they've accomplished on camera, telling them to teach the way they want to teach and not, and not have nuggets. So I think it's one of those kind of flawed genius concepts and hopefully we'll find out. <laughs> okay, so we're going to put journalist Adam Skolnick on the case, and you are going to take the course. I'm going to try to do it as well if I find the time or the patience. But first, we got to read up on some Patterson. So I... <laughs> what are you going to read? I don't know. I've got his list. We, there's First to Die. If you look at Goodreads, and, and there's a listopia, I guess, and Goodreads. And, you know, I like Goodreads. It's a cool website. And they have the list of favorite Patterson novels. First to Die comes up number one. And 91 people voted. And that's number one. It's, the, it's part of his Women's Murder Club series, which is interesting. So I'm going to do that. I, you know, I love a whodunit. So I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about First to Die. 
you wanted to do Along Came a Spider, right? I think so, yeah. I think I want to start there with the Alex Cross. That sounds more up my alley. Yeah, you know what? I think so, too. Yeah. I think I might switch. I never saw the movie. It'd be kind of like Cliff Notes. Cliff's Notes. How do you pronounce it? Cliff's Notes? That's, I, you know, I've, I've never read Moby Dick. I've read the Cliff's Notes of Moby Dick, and now I'm going to read Along Came a Spider. So, so far, I'm, I'm exactly who they're looking for. I'm the target audience of Masterclass. <laughs> they, they have a Moby Dick big read. You can hear the entire Moby Dick read by famous people. A lot of them are famous authors read the entire text of Moby Dick and it's a free podcast. You can download it today. Really? Yeah. But I thought we're supposed to read it. <laughs> exactly. Okay. All right. Last thing I'm going to skip over uh, the fact that James Patterson is also starting an imprint for children's books because dude, does he really need to extend his brand further? He's just having a good time. Like I actually, there's something about how his website, I love how he's just having a good time. Like he doesn't care. He's breaking all the social mores. I mean, somewhere, you know, the great authors like Jonathan Franzen must like, must hate James Patterson. I can only imagine Franzen must think Patterson is the devil. Oh my. I wouldn't know, but I mean, it seems to me that Franzen's pretty serious about his work and I love Franzen. And I have no idea if I'm going to like Patterson. I love Franzen, but I can imagine a guy like that who's like super literary, kind of literary to the to the tenth degree, isn't going to be into the Patterson approach. But there's something about that approach which is appealing to me in some way. Like, don't be so precious. Do your work however you want to do it. And this is what I do. So I'm hoping I'm hoping we can we can have some J Pat, some J Pat nuggets. All right. Well, we're going to bring you back and um, get your uh, take on the James Patterson course once we, yes. uh, once you have completed it. Yes. And I will pretend that I have also. And then I can start in on the Dustin Hoffman course <laughs> straight no, after that. I'm going right to Usher. <laughs> I'm going to go to the Usher, how to be an R&B crooner <laughs> right after that. Yeah. I mean, think about it with my, yeah, never mind. Never mind. Actually, I, I want to take the the LeBron James course because I think <laughs> okay I think if, if I finish the LeBron James course then I can be quite good at basketball. I think that's probably a wrap on the uh, master class. Oh, sorry. Seg. Okay, Adam, thank you so much for coming on um back on the Writer Files doing this session of writer porn as a guest host. I really appreciate your time and I look forward to wrapping with you again in the future. Thank you, man. I'll be back with some J-Pat nuggets of knowledge. Where can listeners find you out there in the world? AdamSkolnick.com, at AdamSkolnick on Instagram and Twitter. And I think that's it. All right, my friend. There's an article in the June issue of Playboy magazine that's out right now on free diving. I think you'll like. Excellent. And have a great time in the islands. Which islands? Oh, yes. Uh, in the Bermuda Triangle. Ooh. Ooh, that sounds like another episode. Sounds like a James Patterson novel. <laughs> okay, perfect. Use it. It's all grist for the mill, my friend. All right, thanks, bud. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for tuning in to The Writer Files. Now get back to work. I am going to take a long walk. For more episodes of The Writer Files and all of the show notes, or to leave us a comment or a question, drop by writerfiles.fm. And please subscribe to the show on iTunes. Leave us a rating or a review. 
and help other riders to find us. You can always chat with me on Twitter at Kelton Reed. Cheers. See you out there. Thank you.